Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. There's two parts of this scene that really stuck out to me. One was when Lucky freaking split somebody's head open because he insulted his dice. And Lucky friendly. Is friend, friendly. <laughs> or, freaking, uh, friendly. <laughs> Do you see him as like one of the seven dwarfs or something? <laughs> well, okay, so he that was crazy because I think that was the first time you realized just saw how like psychotic he was. Yeah. When somebody says that his dice are weighted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like freaking loses it on him, man. So that was crazy. What's up, Practicals and Eaters? This is Steven, Ben, and Ryan, back for another episode of Phantology. We're going to be covering Best Served Cold by Joe Abercrombie today. What's up, guys? Not much. For people on YouTube, we are sponsored by Sonic today, or sponsoring Sonic, I guess. Well, I'm doing good. Ben just jumps right into the sponsorships that don't (laughs) exist. It's the official quarantine drink. All right, whatever keeps you going, man. Just make sure there's no poison from Morvir in there, as there is in almost every drink throughout this book. We're not doing spoilers yet, Stephen. He's a poisoner. Come on, that's not a spoiler. Look, it, it's actually goat milk in there. Mm, that might be a spoiler. We'll, we'll see how that ends up. Anyway, we are excited to review this book. This is book four of the First Law series. Uh, I guess not quite book four, because the first three are a solid trilogy. This is the first of the standalone books, of which there are three. And then Joe Abercrombie has another trilogy that he's written the first of, and he's coming out with the second of that trilogy. So all told, there are, there will be eight books uh, once 2020 wraps up, looking for nine shortly afterwards. And they all kind of tie in together. There are some really nice Easter eggs and fun things. So I honestly probably would not recommend reading this book unless you've read and completed the entirety of the first trilogy. And this review will have spoilers for the first trilogy. Yeah, I agree with that. It's not like absolutely necessary to understand the plot of this book, but it sure increases the reading experience to have uh, read the first law trilogy before this. There's just a lot of background that you'll miss if you skip the previous trilogy. I mean, the ending you would be completely confused on if you ha- if you didn't know who Baez and Karul and Gurkle and you know the prophet and, and all that stuff. If you didn't understand all of the levers that were being pulled in the background, you'd be real confused at the end. Yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily need to know who they are to understand that there are people pulling levers, pulling strings behind the background. Um, But I think it definitely helps put things in perspective, especially with all of the political upheaval and the two main sides, which are established by the end of the book. So before we talk too much end of the book, let me do a little plug for our channel. If you like the content we're putting out at Phantology, check us out at Phantology Books on social media. We have a website, www.phantologybooks.com, where all of our relevant links and episodes are there. And if you want to chat with us more, join our Discord, tell us everything we got wrong, because I guarantee you we are going to butcher some of the smaller details of the book. Hopefully not too many of the major details, though, because this is a book we actually all finished recently so we should do pretty well on our retelling here. Yeah, and just a shout out for Discord. We actually have like, I would say that First Law and Joel Abercrombie, the fans of that series on Discord have been the best and they have really increased our reading experience. I would say we kind of did a, a channel where we kind of did a read along and there's a couple people on Discord that really had some super insightful things. I bet that a lot of what we say today will probably be echoing their thoughts that they had on discord so if you want an enhanced reading experience jump on there yeah we definitely have some experts on first law if you want to join the discord yeah i would probably plug the first law reddit subreddit as well that has a great community there yeah fantastic little niche community from joe abercrombie fans and to be honest after finishing this book i'm surprised that the community isn't bigger because it was a good read So let me speculate as to why the community is not bigger. And I think it's going to roll into our content warning that we try to do for most books. This book and books written by Joe Abercrombie are really not for everyone. And it comes down to the level of content. He does not shy away from violence, gore, 
anything like that. It's it's very graphic. He's known as Lord Grimdark on Twitter, etc. So Grimdark is kind of the style that he's really espoused in his books. There is quite a lot of swearing and some fairly graphic sex in this book as well. So look, it's not for everyone. See, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that though, just because there are popular books, namely Game of Thrones, which are grimdark and have similar amounts of violence, more graphic sex, things like that, which is a very popular series. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I guess uh, that's a good topic of conversation of why fans of George R. R. Martin not just naturally just kind of switched over to Joe Abercrombie books because you're right, Ryan, they do have a very similar flavor to them. Um, I don't know if I have a great answer to that. I, I don't know. Maybe the Game of Thrones TV series really kind of blew that up. And without anything on the first law side, as far as the TV adaptation goes, it just hasn't taken off as far. But that seems strange because there are quite a lot of fans of the book series, Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, first law came along a bit later, right? Like there's been a longer period of time for people to learn about a Song of Ice and Fire. And maybe that played into it. I, I don't know. Yeah, so this book was published in 09. A Dance of Dragons, which is the fifth book in A Song of Ice and Fire, was published in 2011. So fairly contemporary, I would say. Mm. And we haven't had any Song of Ice and Fire since 2011. <clears throat> but we have had more first law books because Abercrombie has written two more standalones as well as A Little Hatred, which is the first in the new trilogy. So three additional books since then with two more coming pretty soon. It seems pretty natural. So if you're listening and you're a fan of A Song of Ice and Fire, or you know people who are, recommend this series because it's a natural jump over. Yeah, I think that that's probably one of my biggest positives about this is it seems like Joe Abercrombie really just puts out stuff very quickly and it's all super high quality. We talked about how prolific Brandon Sanderson is, and he is, but I I feel like the quality in terms of prose kind of suffers a little bit and that is not the case for these books i mean they're, they're just beautiful to read i mean they're ugly to read in the sense that ugly stuff is happening but his writing is just wonderful the writing really makes the grimdark feel for me just the way things are written the way the structure is the way that he uses symbolism and color quite a bit to describe things yeah it totally immerses you in the setting makes it all kind of come together fantastic job there, I, I can't say really enough about that. And as far as being prolific, yeah. So he wrote this book in 09. I said he's had a few more come out. I believe the way that he writes things is he writes them all together, at least for the trilogies. So that's why he is able to release books so quickly. So I believe that we can expect the next book after The Trouble with Peace, which is book eight or the second book in the second trilogy, we can expect book nine pretty quickly because I think he already has a written. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Do you do you appreciate that as a fan of reading? I mean, it's definitely a bold choice, right? Is that like, or do you kind of like uh, wait as long as it's not too unreasonable? You're asking if I appreciate not waiting. I mean, of <laughs> course, I appreciate content coming out quicker. You're waiting a while for the trilogy to come out instead of waiting. For example, Stormlight has been like every two to three years. You know what I mean? So would I rather wait ten years and then have a Stormlight book come out every year? I suppose, or maybe every six years get a trilogy hmm i don't know if i really have a preference i think there's probably like some amount of time that's too long for me three years is pretty reasonable i believe i mean can't really argue with the way that sanderson puts out stuff so i'm fine with waiting three years in between books especially when they're super long but if you have much longer than that yeah it starts to become a little taxing on me as a reader it's not fair to me right yeah, yeah exactly you we are all entitled to have authors put out work in a timely manner and if they don't do it then we all deserve to get on the internet and complain about it or on That's podcasts. Right. They, they work for me as the reader they need to write that stuff <laughs> i mean in a way we do help fund them with our money so they they do kind of have not an obligation but there's certainly an inclination that they should that they should keep content coming out so that we can continue to support them it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship in which they give to us we give back to them and if they stop giving to us then we can't give back to them yeah it's a bit of a fine line to walk right and i think we discussed it quite a bit we had a longer conversation about this in one of our fantasy news monthly fantasy news episodes so if you want to kind of chime in or tune in to see what we said there take a peek but i mean i hope you realize we're mostly being sarcastic and 
the authors are very much entitled to take their time and write something. But like Ryan said, I, I think as a reader, you also really would like to get something in a reasonable manner. Yeah, I think that my experience with Stormlight has been great because I read it right when it comes out. And then it's just long enough for me to want to do a reread of the last book before the next one comes out, you know? And so I feel like I'm I'm constantly um, looking forward to reading part of Stormlight no matter what I'm doing. We should have a challenge where one podcast, we don't mention Brandon Sanderson or the Stormlight Archive. <laughs> Fail. We're 0 for 35. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because like we haven't even reviewed, I think we've only reviewed like the first two Stormlight books, but like nothing else by Sanderson, even though we've like all read all of his works. Well, we did read, uh, we did review Starsight, which is the oh, sure. sequel to Skyward, his YA series. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you're right. We, we are total Sanderson fanboys. We're excited for Rhythm of War to come out. But let's start talking about Best Served Cold by Joe Abercrombie. I'm going to kind of guide you guys through the plot. It's a pretty natural progression because there are seven parts. There's seven different people that Monza is trying to kill. And with that, we are going to go into full spoilers here. So if you haven't read the book yet, you don't want this spoiled. Now's the time to be stop listening, pick it up, and then jump back in again. So the action begins with Monza and her brother, Benna, going to approach Duke Orso. This is somewhat of an info dump as you are getting backstory on the League of Eight and the problems going on in Styria, which is a country that is not featured prominently in the First Law Trilogy. You do see Duke Orso at the end of Last Argument of Kings. He comes in with, with an army and kind of saves the day a little bit. And then his daughter is obviously Giselle's bride. Don't remember her name off the top of my head, but she's annoying. She's an annoying character. Anyway, Monza and her brother. Monza is a mercenary captain. She's done a lot of work for Duke Orso, and she is approaching him in talons, expecting to be crowned as a, as a great victor. And she comes up and is betrayed by him. And six other men, six six other people are party to this betrayal. Benna is killed. Monza is seriously wounded and left for dead. But she is not killed. She is, in fact, found and restored in kind of a gruesome way. Just stitched back together, pieced back together. And then sent on her way. And she is bent on revenge after that. So with all of that info dump for you guys on part one... How did the book start for you? What was your opinion on this? I loved it. It started, throws you right into the action, really draws me, draws the reader in and keeps you coming back for more. It doesn't have a slow start at all. Quick pace, my favorite way for a book to start. I think chapter one was called Benna Saves a Life. And you find out that he saves Monza's life because he cushions her fall. <laughs> His corpse. Yeah, his corpse, his corpse cushions, corpse her, cushions fall. her fall. Yeah, yeah. Even even the chapter titles are so gruesome and set this grimdark feel to the book. There's an awesome quote later in the book that kind of breaks the fourth wall. The quote is something like, "It's not any author that can make death funny" or something like that. I I totally butchered that, but it's like Joe Abercrombie kind of patting himself on the back and and saying, "Oh, you do a great job of creating this really dark humor in the yeah. books," and that's what makes him so great. Yeah, so I thought it was really good. I will say I was talking to Josh before we started recording this, and he's not on the call because he's only 70% of the way done. But I asked him what his uh, worst of the best was. And he said that he thought that the beginning sequence would have been better served as a flashback, especially because of how well this book does other flashbacks. And so I thought that was an interesting perspective. I, I really liked how it started. But after hearing him talk about that, I might agree with it. What would be gained by having it as a flashback, though? It could be more of a mystery and it could, well, his point was that you weren't connected with the characters yet. And so the fact that this gruesome thing happened was jarring, but you weren't connected with anybody yet. So you kind of didn't get the full weight of it. I don't know. I, I liked it, but I think that there's, it, it was definitely a bold choice to do. Yeah. For example, you didn't really care at all that Ben had died. You just knew that he was the brother, but you had no understanding as to really what role he played or had played so, thus far. I mean, they kind of like set the tone with how close Monza and Benna are just because they're they're joking back and forth. And then before they enter the throne room with Duke Orso, I think Benna like smiles to Monza and says, I love you, something along those lines. So, you know, they're close and it's tragic for Monza as she watches her brother die. But the other good thing that I like about 
this is if there's any doubt as to what genre or what the the story following this first introduction all doubt is erased that it's grimdark it's going to be gruesome it's going to be a dark story and you know that and so if you don't like that first chapter then you should just put the book down then because you're not going to like anything else yeah i started reading the story i i tend to read kind of as i'm falling asleep i'll, I'll listen to some and I'll, I'll just put a sleep timer on and then i'll go back to where i was when i fell asleep in the morning but i intended to listen to like 20 30 minutes and fall asleep and i think i listened to like two hours of the beginning <laughs> of the book because i could not fall asleep i was so horrified listening to like how Monza was gruesomely almost killed and then pieced back together by the bone collector guy it was it was rough I think the worst for me was like reading about her hand was bitten into by the garroted wire and for some reason that was the most graphic for me yeah so as part of the bone uh, part of the bone collector it talks about how he put coins in uh, to patch up her skull yeah, I thought ugh. that was going to be significant later on, and it wasn't. But like, like on the cover of the book, there's coins, right? Like on bloody coins on a map. Did you were you let down that that wasn't significant? So you thought maybe like she was going to be shot in the well, back of the head, and the, the coins were going to deflect it or something? <laughs> no, well maybe that, or maybe that there's some magical property or something. I don't know. I feel like it's just such a random detail to include that. I was just expecting it to kind of come full circle. I don't know. I mean, Joe Abercrombie, obviously, he's a very detail-oriented author. He describes things in, in such detail. I mean, you you know, like the the Garrett and her trying to, to stop the Garrett with her hand, you know, that's kind of a useless detail almost. I will say, so full spoilers towards the end of the book, there were two things that kind of came to mind. As you said, that one... We know the, the fact that the Bone Collector guy, I think that was how they described him, the Bone Collector, right? I thought it was Bone Thief. Bone Thief, or whatever it is. He likes bones. We'll go with that. Correct us on Discord. Anyway, we know that he is shanked. We don't get that until the very end of the story. And he is a powerful eater and former apprentice of Baez. So yeah, maybe the coins could have been magical and that could have been something. And who knows? I mean, Monza is still around. She is now the Duchess of Talons and has a pretty big role to play in future stories. We haven't read anything past this fourth book. So maybe, maybe, maybe we'll see more. The yeah. other thing that I did like about this scene was, so her, her hand was super messed up after the garroted wire to the point where she had to wear a glove all the time. Cause it was so disfigured and her little pinky stuck out all the time. And I think there was one sequence where the fact that her pinky stuck out, like poked someone in the eye and an opportune moment and kind of save the day. And then when she was putting the crown on Robont at the very end and the crown was poisoned, she was saved because she was wearing a glove because of course she had to because her hand was so messed up. So that was a nice detail that tied in. I thought her messed up hand was the hand that got smashed by Gaba. Was it? it okay, it got, maybe yeah. I was a little off, but yeah. yeah. Okay, so one of them was garroted. One of them was smashed. So Her hands get yeah. messed up. <laughs> Yeah, bad bad news for her hands. So I think that also, because throughout the book, it constantly talks about her pinky sticking out. And I think that that's one of the ways, like we talked about the writings being so good and his characterization is also so good. And it's one of those things that really like made you get inside Monza's head as a character because she's always noticing her pinky. Like that's just something that she always thinks about and always like looks down and sees. And as a reader, it sticks in your mind as well. Like you're like, oh crap, this character is a pinky that just sticks out. Yeah, and I think I mentioned this on the first Law trilogy, but he writes characters that are disabled or disfigured, like Glockta, super well. Like he gets inside their their minds and it's very realistic because I myself am disabled and those types of things are always in the back of my mind. And it's amazing how these characters are the same. And I can say like, if I was in their shoes and I was disabled like they were, that's exactly what my mindset would be. And I know that because I am like in my real life. So it's really amazing writing. So props to Joe Abercrombie for that. And I will say something embarrassing for me. I was convinced that the bone thief and people on Discord know this. I was convinced that the bone thief was in fact Glockta. So Stephen yeah, was, <laughs> was trying to convince me and I would not be convinced. No, I was not trying to convince you. I was trying to dis- dissuade you because <laughs> you had this ridiculous theory that it was Glockta. It does not, no, it's not Glockta. You were just 
going for something there too much. That's the that's the type of high quality that you get on our Discord, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. surprise me at the all though. You guys can get some outlandish <laughs> theories stuck in your head. I mean, at least you were right in that the bone thief had some importance. I was almost convinced until the end that he was just some random character. I, I mean, that's almost an insult to Joe Abercrombie because I should have figured that he would be important eventually, but he had me fooled completely. Yeah, overall strong opening sequence, though. We've nitpicked it a lot, but I think deservedly so because it really sets the tone and it dictates the whole rest of the book. Okay, so from this point, we go into part one, and the first person that Mons is going to kill is Gaba. He is what? He's like a bodyguard of Orso, and yeah. he is bet- he's betrayed her because he's just been you know part of the scheme. He crushes her hand. And so a few things happen. We get our first set of flashbacks to Monza's early life with Benna. These kind of start every chapter as we slowly get more and more of Monza's backstory. And we also get introduced to Shivers, Call Shivers, who was a minor character in the First Law trilogy. He's a Northman who has a beef with Logan Nine Fingers and had the opportunity to kill Logan but decided not to and comes to Talon's determined to be a better man. And sadly, that is beaten out of him very quickly as he finds he's not able to get work in an honorable trade. He joins up with Monza, gets paid a lot, starts killing people. So the first person they kill is Gaba. They, they just capture him and torture him. And Monza like, beats his head in with a hammer. It's pretty graphic. Do you also mention that they met Friendly at this point? Oh, yeah, yeah. They So that is that now or a little bit later? No, I think he is involved in killing Gaba. So that Friendly is a henchman of sorts of Sajam, Sajam, who is kind of like this, I don't know, pimp type guy. Like he, he's just got a lot of money and, and followers. I, I don't know exactly what I'd call. He's like a drug dealer. Yeah. 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 He's, he's like a, yeah, a mob boss or drug dealer is a good way to describe him because this setting kind of screams that it's like this Italian-esque Renaissance setting. And so friendly is a psychopath who comes out of prison and has this obsession with counting stuff. He's pretty funny. He he gives a lot of comedic relief, but he also has like no conscience. He's like Rain Man. Yeah, he loves numbers, obsessed with counting. He really likes his dice that he carries with him and um, likes to think about the odds. So again, a really unique character. I mean, you don't really see these characters outside of Joe Abercrombie's work, I, I don't feel like. Yeah, he's got some big time psychopathic characters in this book, him and Morvir come to mind the most of all i'm not a psychopath so i can't relate to them at all but i feel like i don't know maybe that's what psychopaths act like and think so i'll just say i took issue with the fact that he that she chose to take revenge on glaba first we talked about on discord a little bit like he's like the most nobody of them all and i'm like why would you just alert everybody else that you're coming by like starting with the small fish but jovi on discord kind of talked about the fact that like revenge was this basic human need that Monza had and she wanted to start fulfilling it right away. And so that was super compelling. Like that argument I felt was super compelling. It just kind of seemed like it was a good marriage of availability and desire. Like she was ready to get started with her revenge. She really needed to because she had just been coming out of this personal hell and had been completely rebuilt and she needed something in her life. And that something was brutally killing this dude. But he was also easily accessed. None of the other guys, all the, all the other guys took more effort and required more means to kill. So throughout throughout this story, I think, Ben, you made a good point on our Discord in which Shivers and Monza are kind of a foil to each other in that they both start in different places and they end in different places. And they kind of they kind of just walk opposite roads and meet somewhere in the middle and then pass each other and keep going. And Monza is just this vengeance driven woman who's kind of lost everything in her life. Whereas Shivers is determined to turn over a new leaf and become a new man, a good man. And he, he tries his best to, or he tries to find work in an honorable position. I say honorable, I mean, normal, not breaking the law and, Struggles, can't find any work, and sure enough, Monza comes along and offers him a lot of money to do bad things, and he accepts. And but even after he kills Gaba, he still remains optimistic. But I think this kind of shows his slow descent from 
a desire to do good into doing bad, but still wanting to do good into no longer wanting to do good and just becoming more and more bad throughout the story. It all starts off from this chapter. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it's very compelling because he at this chapter is in a crossroads and he's like thinking about whether he's going to continue with Monzi or not. And he hears that the reason why she's taking revenge is because they killed her brother. And that's exactly why he was going to take revenge against Logan nine fingers was because Logan killed his brother. And so it was like this fortuitous moment where he was like, well, maybe I can help her fulfill her vengeance pack. Whereas I didn't fulfill mine. It was like the one thing that he needed to hear. And so that's crazy because, you know, that started back in the first law trilogy, you know, it was kind of brought into this. And so that's just great storytelling. It's great motivation. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah, they're really good foils for each other. And I really just kind of hate Monza for the path that she put Shivers on. She completely broke him down and made fun of him for being optimistic. And then, I mean, we haven't got to the big climactic moment for Shivers when he loses his eye and gets tortured. But that really just kind of flips the script for him. And unfortunately, at least in this book, he really never turns it around. We're going to see more of him. I've been told that he appears in the other two standalones and in the next trilogy. So I'm really kind of hoping that he gets something of a redemption. But honestly, with Joe Abercrombie, I cannot be too optimistic that he does. Yeah, there aren't very many happy endings in the first law world. So the last thing I wanted to bring up about this, at this point in the book, it was clear to me, at least that there's going to be a very like rigid plot structure here. You know that like there's going to be seven people that she goes and takes revenge on and we're just going to go person by person by person. That's pretty much how it happens with a little bit of slowdown in the middle. Did you guys like the fact that it was so kind of predictable like that? I have a lot of thoughts on the plot structure that I think I'm going to save until the end. But I did. Yeah, I I liked how it started. I liked the heist type of structure. I mean, it's not a heist. It's more of a murder heist. But the, the plot structure remains the same, right? You've got a small band of people that is going up against the odds. And there were some kind of heist esque moments. It reminded me a lot of the lies of Locke Lamora at the beginning in that you had a, a small group of people, the, the story and their narrative was very narrowly focused. And you also kind of had this like Renaissance Italy type setting. So I was totally into this thinking it was going to be another lies of Locke Lamora, but maybe more adult, which is kind of weird because lies of Locke Lamora is already fairly, fairly adult, but this even kind of took it up a step further. Yeah. I, I think I would agree that the plot is very structured and I did like that, but I would not call it predictable because from where it starts to where it ends, I would never have been able to predict that. So going into part two, so we've got one out of seven down. The first one was fairly easy. The next one, we enlist another member of the cast, another member of our heist crew, kind of like in Ocean's Eleven where they go around and visit everyone and get him in on the team. So this guy is Morvir and his apprentice Day. Morvir is a poisoner by trade, and they go and visit him. He's brewing up this thing that he's calling the King of Poisons, and he demonstrates his power by uh, paralyzing both of them and then ultimately agreeing to help in their quest, really because he's extremely egocentric and wants to be known as like the greatest poisoner in the world, and he sees this opportunity to kill these people and also like, his chance to really make his, make his name known. What do you guys think of Morvir? Another awesome character, and the way the way he poisons them is by handshake. And so let this th- let that be a lesson for all of us during this pandemic season: is that not, <laughs> don't shake hands with anybody. Yeah, Morvir is kind of like a walking contradiction, like you said earlier, Stephen. He's motivated by his desire to make his mark in the world, to permanently change things, but by profession, in order to be a successful poisoner, he needs to remain ambiguous not uh, his identity unknown but his ambitions are constantly overcoming his main mantra which is caution first yeah and i thought that the way that his i mean we're doing full spoilers obviously but the way that his character arc was was finished with monza kind of blaming him for everything and setting him up as kind of the world's greatest prisoner or poisoner it was just so freaking good, you know? Yeah, that was perfect. That one yeah. was awesome. I mean, he didn't get the happy ending. No one really gets the happy ending. 
If you're expecting it, don't read Joe Abercrombie. But he did get the ending he deserved because he wanted to be known as the world's greatest poisoner. And he was. There's like a 200,000 scale bounty on his head now. But he's dead, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he's awesome. I felt I felt like, again, his character was so well served by like these little flashbacks, these little like tidbits of flashbacks where you kind of like learn that he's just like killing all these people by poisoning them. Like he kills his mom. He kills like a bunch of people at the orphanage. He kills just countless people and it keeps on making his life like worse and worse. And he doesn't realize it, right? Yeah. He's, a, he's a total psychotic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just crazy how this character is just so well done. The moment where later on where he's like trying to connect with them and he cooks them some food, but it doesn't go well at all because one of the eaters, Ishri, shows up and ruins it. But that moment was awesome because you kind of see inside his head and you're like, okay, this guy is like trying to make a human connection, but he completely fails because he's way off the rails. It was it was kind of sad to be totally honest. It's just, you know, his last ditch attempt, he's swallowing his pride a little bit and just saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to these people, make them my mother's best recipe of mushroom soup. And then something totally out of his control goes wrong and he kind of fails, but, and he doesn't take it very well. Well, it's funny because he's like, he does not believe in magic at all. Right. Like he's like a scientist and like this magical person comes up and spoils his plans. Yeah. Uh, the, the difference between magic and science was awesome. There is a fantastic line later on or a sequence of events later on where they are fighting. Um, I think this is maybe like part five. They're fighting in the, in the farmhouse. I don't remember the actual setting. We'll get to it in a second, but shivers is like, Oh crap, science. Oh crap. Magic. Oh crap. Banking or something. And as everything is going wrong and, and you just see all these different things, uh, yeah. all these different plot threads kind of come in and, and through shivers eyes and shivers doesn't understand any of it, but it's fantastic. As a reader. Yeah, he's like, he's just like, it can't get worse than science, and it's like can't get worse than that. Oh yeah, yeah. But again, brilliance of Joe Abercrombie. I just this guy, man. Lots of dark humor. One last parting note on Morvir. I think he's a little OP because poisoning just through touch—that's like too powerful. That's not a real thing, right? I, I hope not. I mean, maybe anthrax would be the only. Uh, it would be the only thing relatable in our world but i think that's too strong the ability to poison someone by touching them or putting a crown on their head too much for me i wasn't buying it that's a good criticism i hadn't really thought about that i mean his he's always saying that poisoners the number one reason why they die is through their agents and what kills him in the end are his agents so even though you're saying that his skills as a poisoner are kind of overpowered and they still get the best of him in the end i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah that's not. I don't know if that's a criticism as much as just an observation that he is quite powerful and, and very adept at poisoning. And we see this at the end of part two when they kill the banker guy, Malthus, 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 something like that, who was responsible. Or he, I don't know exactly what role he played, but he was a part of the takedown of Bena and Monza. And Morbier just poisons the entirety of the banking house. He goes way too strong with the poisoning. After an initial attempt that goes wrong, he just decides I'm going to take them all out. And Monza's a little taken aback. I think Shivers is as well. They're like, holy cow, man, you're psychotic. And one thing I really liked about that scene is it was like they had to like creep inside the bank. And that was a pretty great scene. And it was cool because he accidentally, they're climbing on a rope and he has like the rope set to like burn out. So it doesn't really like leave any trace. And he accidentally like paralyzes himself a little bit. And he said, there's a line that he's like, there's never a happy accident, right? And he ends up falling like on the rope, like through a window. And it's a happy accident that he, his life is saved. But he also barges in on on Shivers and Monza getting funky with it. So that's, that's also kind of a plot structure, a plot thread that starts in this, in this scene. Okay, so that takes place in Westport. That was part two. Now we go to part three, Sapani. Initially, there are two targets. She wants to kill both dukes or sons of Orso's princes, I guess. Um, Ario and his brother, who I don't remember his name right now. Foscar, I think, is maybe his name. Anyway, he he gets killed later on. This one is about Ario. This chapter is where things kind of start to shift. So in Sapani, 
they infiltrate this party of sorts. It's like an after party after these peace talks that are happening. You see Jazal from a distance, which is kind of fun because he's, he was a, a POV character in the original trilogy. And now you just kind of get to see him through someone else's eyes. And you don't see Glockta, but they do talk about the cripple who's running things behind the scenes. I, I wish we could have seen Glockta as well. Anyway, they infiltrate this party uh, intent on killing both sons of Orso. They get one of them before everything falls apart and it turns into this huge massacre, right? What did you guys think of this scene? This scene was crazy. Well, both of the past two murders, they intend on only killing one person, but the the fallout kind of lots of innocent people end up dying. And I think it's bothering Monza more and more. And she, she, in the back of her mind, she's starting to think, is this vengeance really worth it if all of these people have to die? Whereas Logan, on the other hand, he's kind of caring about things less and less. And, and when you say Logan, you mean Shivers, right? <laughs> yes. When I say when I say Logan, I mean Shivers. For some reason, they're I guess because they're both Northmen and they're kind of related from the from the first trilogy. I mean, in this part, he's even playing Logan. That's his cover. Oh yeah, that's that's true. That's what we call a happy accident, right? That that is a happy accident. But I feel like you know, it's almost like Monza is using Logan to using Shivers to kind of make better herself and. In the process, she's kind of dragging him down as she's she's pulling herself up. And I think through their closely entwined relationship, and there's a few times when Shivers actually tries to leave and Monza, Monza kind of begs him to to stay and he, he relents and he does stay against probably his better judgment, maybe because of his feelings for Monza. And I think, you know, it, Shivers is going down. Mons is going up. Yeah, I think that there's there's two parts of this scene that really stuck out to me. One was when Lucky freaking split somebody's head open because he insulted his dice. And Lucky friendly. is friend, friendly. <laughs> or, freaking, uh, friendly. <laughs> Do you see him as like one of the seven dwarfs or something? <laughs> well, okay, so he that was crazy because I think that was the first time you realized you saw how like psychotic he was. Yeah. When somebody says that his dice are weighted. <laughs> Just like freaking loses it on him, man. So that was crazy. And then I also, I thought it was cool how the Northman that was kind of fight, like pretend fighting with Shivers was actually like there to kill him because Shivers had, oh, what, what was, what evil had Shivers propagated against this guy? I thought Shivers killed his brother. I don't know if he killed him explicitly. I think that he led his brother to the death or something. Like his battle brother fought in a battle alongside Shivers and died. Close enough. These Northmen are always killing each other. Yeah, but so that that like it really showed how like everybody is just in it for vengeance, and it's just, you know like here's this side character that's like on a revenge path for his brother. That like it was just crazy how the theme of revenge was just like so well entwined in every little aspect. So that was cool. I also thought it was crazy when Shivers like accidentally kills like a woman that was just like randomly walking by, and how for some reason that action like really got stuck in his head and he was like hating himself for it. Cause I thought it was like one of those things that you might not ever think about that happen in these type of melee situations. Yeah. He's still kind of hanging on to that thread of goodness, I guess. And we don't know it yet, but the events that happen here are going to have very large ramifications for future events. Once we get to like parts five and six and seven, this was where my main criticism was. I wish we could have had more of an inclination that the fact that this party went so poorly and so many people got killed and Aryo got killed and Jazal was put in danger, etc. Like that was what really kind of broke down the peace talks that were, I think, supposed to be happening and ended up bringing one of the nations to Ravan's side and ultimately defeating Orso. I wish we could have had more of a hint of that. Maybe I just missed it, but I, I feel like more of like a boots on the ground type thing would have done better when the plots kind of switched over from the smaller scale, narrow focus on our group of heroes or anti-heroes, eventually that switches into a much larger scale of nations conflicting. And that was jarring. That was my main criticism. of. Yeah, I, th I think that um, Abercrombie kind of keeps it relatively secret because 
I think he wants it to be a big surprise when uh, Rogan ends up winning the battle against Duke Orso's forces. And it's kind of surprising. And then uh, Rogan reveals all of the things that kind of lined up to enable him to win that battle. But I do think that he could have, by he, I mean Abercrombie could have described a little bit more of the the ramifications of that party and the consequences thereof without explicitly revealing how those things were helping out Orso's enemies. Yeah, I agree. I think I would add a suggestion here that there could have been a perspective that like a point of view that that allowed for us to see what was happening, similar to like Shank's perspective or point of view, because I thought Shank was really cool because he only appeared like what a few times, maybe three or four times with very short perspectives. But it really tied in well to the ending and seeing how much of an outsized role he was playing. And so a similar point of view would have been really well served for that. Yeah, Shanked kind of helped to give you an idea that Orso at least was concerned about where things were going. But you never really got a sense of of what was happening in the background with these different nations. And honestly, for me, it was hard to even remember the different names of the different leaders and and countries, or I guess different city-states is what they are. Because they were a little kind of they're a little unfamiliar with their naming system. I mean, I liked the naming system; it was okay, but it was hard to remember. It's hard to know the exact significance of which city state was doing what, and that was yeah, that was that was my main criticism. And and the writing doesn't really give you time to care, right? Like it's so fast paced where exciting things are always happening, and you're so wrapped up in this revenge plot. So it's not like you have time to really sit back and think about the the big picture. So also in that party, we we saw several different POVs that were kind of fun. We got introduced to Carlet Dan Eider, who had been a, a somewhat of a side character in the first trilogy. Casca comes back in. He is going to play a major role for the rest of the series. Well, the rest of this book. He was a pre- previously like a lovable mercenary captain, kind of a, a fumbling idiot. But underneath the surface, he is actually pretty smart and uh, and scheming to to his own means. But right now he's currently just a drunk. And who else? We have Ghost, Garst, the guy who Giselle dueled in uh, the first book or the second book. That was kind of fun seeing him as, as now a guard to Giselle. Um, there, there might have been, oh, there was also Vitari, the practical, former practical, who played a role in the first trilogy. And I honestly didn't even realize that that was who she was. I was a little confused as to who this assassin slash former practical was. That was now part of the group. Anyway. Let's move on past this, and we're now going to go into part three, which takes place in Viserine, and the target here is General Ganmark. Part four, you mean? Part Yeah, part four. General Ganmark is besieging v- Viserine, and our group of anti-heroes is going to infiltrate the city and try to, I guess, blend in with the army and get a shot at Ganmark, but this is where things really start to go poorly. So the way that they go poorly is... <laughs> Is, is our, our heroes are thinking that they're going to blend in with the army and then get close to Ganmark, but they're captured by the Viserine forces and tortured, at least Monza and Shivers are. Shivers has his eye put out and probably would have been killed if not for Casca, who comes in based off his previous relationship with the Duke or leader of Viserine. And then they kind of buddy up with him for a while. They lie in wait for Ganmark and then get into a little battle in the palace where ultimately they are able to kill Ganmark, but sadly Casca is left for dead. That whole sequence was, I mean, you talk about grimdark when Monza and Shivers are being tortured is so hard. I mean, man, it just makes you cringe every time when you think about them burning Shivers eye out, that was rough. And one fun fact, if you're, if you're listening to this book, the narrator actually changes his voice for Shivers. He like makes it very low and gravelly because Shivers spends like the next like three days or whatever it is screaming and kind of permanently damages his vocal cords. So listening to this book kind of adds another dimension and the narrator is awesome. It, it for sure ups the stakes as well. Previously, this cast of characters have been fumbling through things, but overall going to to plan. And this just like, does not go to to plan at all. It also shows just how ineffective torture can be because the guards have this preset idea that 
these people are spies trying to infiltrate us and that's what they're always going to think. And so they're torturing them and they get to the point where they were shivers and Monza are just saying, we'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Just give me like just a few more seconds, a few more seconds of, of not being tortured. And, and so even though they're totally innocent of these accusations, they're just trying to come up with anything to prevent it. But to tie into my last points, I, I feel like I've been making a lot of points about Shivers and Monza and just their uh, positions morally compared to each other. This is, I feel, is finally when Shivers goes down and Monza kind of is above him now morally because Shivers, Shivers takes the iron, the, the burning hot iron in the eye instead of Monza. And saves her from this, not intentionally, but he saves her. And this just pushes him into the darkest that we start, that we see him as of yet. And, and Monza's starting to, once again, I guess she's, she's seeing the consequences of her quest for vengeance and how it's affecting people. And now it's getting to people who are even closer to her. And it's interesting because the reason why they are caught is because Monza spared the lives of the villagers that were putting them up. And they're actually the ones that went and got the guard or whatever. And so oh, yeah, it, yeah. it was like this moral high ground that Monza took that ended up bringing shivers down. So yeah, it's like, I picture their arcs kind of like an X and this is like right where they cross. Like Monza's trying to be better, but in that action, she really takes down shivers to, to his new lows. Yeah. Very good points. So that all happens in Viserine. And now in part five, we go to Piranti and the focus of the story switches over to the Thousand Swords, which is the group of mercenaries that Casca previously led and uh, Monza led after him, after they had somewhat of a falling out, and is now led by Faithful Carpi, who betrayed Monza and Benna, and so he is the next target, Faithful. This is kind of the point where a lot of the flashbacks of Monza and Benza, Benna. Monza and Benna lead up to, because now we know that they had that Casca kind of took them up after their farm was destroyed and taught them how to read. And then they became these leaders of, of the mercenaries and, and ultimately then betrayed Casca because Benna had all these ambitions. So this part, uh, yeah, the focus shifted a bit. I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty fun part, especially the battle that happens at the farmhouse when they set up uh, faithful and, and the thousand swords leaders. Yeah, that was super cool. The battle was very well done. It was interesting because there was a point where you thought that Shivers might be betraying Monza. Like, I mean, it was kind of unreliable narration in a good way this time, if you were listening to the Red Red Rising, where you thought that he was going to go betray Monza to Faithful, and then he actually was leading Faithful to a, to an ambush. That was well done. I also thought it was super well done how this is kind of the first point where Monza is thinking about sparing her her target and doesn't because he kind of starts to get sucked up by the water wheel or whatever that's well, called. Well, she tries to save him. She yeah. tries to help get him out at the last moment. She she has regret and remembers Faithful Carpy and, and, and the companion that he's been, and she tries to save him but ultimately fails, and he gets dragged in, under the water wheel. Yeah, I thought that was a good switch for Monza. You also have... In the battle, Morvir kills his apprentice Day because he thinks that, well, she thinks that he's going to betray and she tries to kill him. And then he's like, I got to kill her because she tried to kill me. It's this big misunderstanding that was inevitable. And then he takes off. Casca still, we, we still believe that he is dead at this point, right? So he's not really participating in the battle. And I thought the action here was really good. Like the way that Joe Abercrombie writes this stuff, you can really picture like blow by blow what's happening. I find some authors, like um, especially I, I, I'm going to be a little critical of Sanderson here. A lot of the Mistborn fights I found to be a little repetitive, like, okay, they're shooting the coin, they're flying, blah, blah, blah. But in this action, I was really following it really well. And the same can be said of the scene when Shanks goes through and kills Sajam and all of his men. Those scenes were like made for movies or, or TV. You could You could really just picture exactly what was happening. Yeah, I agree. Very well done. And that was also the first time we see the eater's magic that was being used kind of full force there with the explosions that were happening and stuff like that. So that was cool. 
Yeah, that wasn't actually the Eaters. That was just like Gurkish Fire, which is an advancement of science. But yeah, we are starting to get introduced to the larger conflict because you have Ishri, who is an Eater and an agent of the Prophet of Gurkul, Karul. And so now you have, like, and she's funding Rabant, who is the Duke, leader, whatever title of Ospria. And that is part six. So now the, the plot has really expanded and Ospria is being besieged by Orso's men. This is kind of like the climactic battle of the League of Eight versus Orso. And Thousand Swords play a key role here because Monza is planning on delivering them to Rabant and then winning the battle and then killing the, the Duke's son. I don't still can't remember his name. I'll come up with that in a second. But this, the, yeah, the plot is really starting to expand. What did you guys kind of think of, of how this worked? Were you able to follow what was going on well enough? Yeah, I followed it well enough just where Casca kind of talks the Thousand Swords out of being on the front lines. And he says, you know, we're going to go around and, and flank them. And it comes to light that he took money from Duke Orsa or from Rogant not to fight. His typical betrayal of and and getting out of fighting as is his nature yeah i thought that this was interesting because it was the first time that you see costco 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 he's not a department store costco (laughs) it's the first time you see him start to enact his own set of revenge you know where he just like starts to kill his uh former or his generals and tries to like kind of start weaving this tale that that his general like saved his life or whatever, but like clearly not very believable, but kind of paints over it with money. Anyway, again, revenge is kind of rearing its ugly head in this situation. And even shivers is talked into revenge against none other than his old romance interest of Monza. He's talked into it by his new romance interest, Carlette Den Eider. And so everybody's gets getting sucked into this vengeance thing. Yeah, and that's going to lead us to the exciting conclusion that happens back in Talons. So Orso has been, his forces at least have been defeated. He has sent Shanked and a bunch of assassins off to kill, including Morvir. Morvir now joins up with Talons, or not with Talons, but with Orso. Morvir joins up with Orso, and he has his own list of seven people that he wants to kill. These are the heads of, of the different city-states, as well as, I think, was Casca on the list? Casca may or may not have been on the list. But Monza certainly was. And so now things are all coming to a head. Monza goes back to Talon. She is kind of proclaimed as a savior. She's going to become the new Duchess of Talon's. Orso is hiding off in his fortress nearby, being besieged by the Thousand Swords, amongst other forces. And Rabant and his other cronies, who are the other heads of state, are going to all crown Rabant as like the Grand King of Styria. And it seems like everything is going to go towards a real happy ending, right? Of course. Sure does seem like that. But obviously we never believe it's going to because Morvir, who has, he tries a couple times to kill people, he fails, but he does grandly succeed in poisoning the crown, which goes on Rabant's head. Rabant is killed as well as all of our different leaders who enter the book really quickly and then exit in caskets. We do the dancing funeral meme for them. All of a sudden... (laughs) which is a popular thing on Discord uh, right now. But Monza is the only one who survives via the fact that she's wearing a glove on her hand. And now we just have the final conclusion, which is Monza versus Orso, the thing we've been waiting for for the entire book. Yeah, so one thing I wanted to bring up with that is how he poisons the crown is because he was going to a position where he would like fire a dart or whatever, but he actually ends up finding the box with the crown in it, right? And it was, again, yeah. like, to continue this theme of a happy accident or whatever that he that he randomly finds the crown there and is able to poison it and he chooses to finally not be cautious he acts with ambition at this one moment and it works out amazingly for him it's just so interesting how each kind of character has their own theme that dictates their actions in unlikely yet very satisfactory ways and so that was that was one of those moments so now that this has all been wrapped up, we go to the fortress that uh, Orso is hiding in. Don't remember the name off the top of my head, but this fortress is totally impre- impregnable. The walls are amazingly strong, but we have Gurkish fire on our side, and we've dug a tunnel, and we're about to blast this off. 
Casca kills another one of his former generals who did him wrong as he continues his run of revenge. And then we just have this scene of slaughter and mayhem going on inside the castle. We finally get into the keep where all of the characters kind of turn on each other. Morvir tries to kill Casca. Casca is killing another one of his generals. Ultimately, Morvir is killed by Casca, who it is revealed has not drunk alcohol for quite some time and so did not fall prey to Morvir's plan of poisoning all of the wine. And then Shivers finally turns on Monza, tries to kill her, but he is kind of knocked aside by Faithful. Him and Faithful fight for a while. Friendly. Friendly. Sorry. Again, I, I guess they're just a bunch of dwarfs. <laughs> Fr- friendly tries to fr- fr- friendly distracts him and ultimately Monza is saved she goes on to kill Orso and I guess everyone just kind of winds up where, where they should be really yep again this goes to kind of like stumbling towards the finish line right like they're all they get to where they need to be but it's not it's not very pleasant to get there and I thought that one of the best scenes of this whole situation was when Shivers was climbing up the ladder He's just like, screw it. If I get boiling water or flaming oil poured on me, whatever. Like, I'm not going to look up because that'll just make it more likely to happen. I'm just going to climb this ladder as fast as I can. And it kind of gave you a good insight of where his character was at in that moment. <laughs> just totally like, didn't really care about his own life. Just wanted to get what he needed to done over with and was very practical about that. And at the end of the book, he kind of ends up at the bottom in jail and Monza ends up at the top with the Grand Duchess. She's pregnant with possibly Shivers or the Grand Duke Rogan's baby. And she, I think, has kind of decided that vengeance isn't for her anymore. And so she sets Shivers free, which is just shows how far she's come from the beginning of the book. She's still not a great person, but she's certainly improved a lot, I think. And... Another interesting person, Koska, in in the case of Monza, has decided that he's not going to take vengeance on her. I think he's decided that fairly early on in the book. But these people who are killing people left and right who betrayed them have ultimately decided that at least in some situations, vengeance isn't the best solution. Yeah, Monza didn't really have a happy ending. She's now kind of tied to the larger turnings of the wheel, the, the battle that's going on between Baez and Karul. Ka can never say his name right. But his uh, his emissary, Baez's emissary, comes to her. She rejects him along with help from Shanked, who is kind of opposing both forces. So I'll, I'm interested to see what's going to happen with Styria and how this is going to tie in to the larger plot. And I think it's awesome that we now have a lot of backstory. And I think this gives Abercrombie a lot of room to go in his next trilogy, because I'm sure that Styria is going to show up. Yeah, I thought it wrapped up really well. What do you guys think about Friendly's character, where, where he ended? Like trying to go back to safety, which the prison. Yeah, how tragic, but also how psychotic and weird. It was the only place that made sense to him. Rather than being in such a chaotic world, he wanted to go back to that one place where, where he could figure things out. It's so funny to me that the character he's most attracted to is Casca. Because like Costco's like the, they're they're complete opposites, yet somehow they they're exactly what each other need. You know, like Costco needs this balancing stability, and for whatever reason, Friendly really like has attached himself to Costco. Yeah, they're both kind of chaotic forces, but in opposite directions. Almost, I, I think they're a pretty good fit. Actually, Costco when he does his little comeback after being presumed dead, he grabs Friendly, and there's a moment where Friendly's like, "Oh, you're alive," but you don't know as a reader. And then it gets revealed that the Costco is back. So they have um, a, a friendship that dates back to even uh, coming back from the dead. Yeah, I thought I thought it was cool. And I, I feel like the the scene that they kind of developed that friendship was when they're like sitting down and Friendly was making Costco breakfast and Costco was just talking, talking, talking. And then he was like, Friendly, you're the best conversationalist in the world. And Friendly's like, I didn't say anything. Costco was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great scene. I think it's because Costco is the one person that kind of treats Friendly as an equal, whether or not he actually thinks of him as an equal. I think everybody else sort of treats him as a tool to be used. One other parting shot from me. I really liked the scene where Monza is talking with, oh, what's his name? Baez's agent. Anyway, it's just kind of calls back to 
the scene at the end of Last Argument of Kings when Glockta is talking with Baez and you realize that really just pieces on the squares board and there is this there's this larger thing going on that's really been behind all of it. And you've got hints of that throughout the book. There's always uh, the, the bank, Valentin Balk, is always kind of behind things. The eaters are around. There's talk of Gurkle. There's these guys with different colored eyes who are always in, in the background. So to, to have it just kind of brought out right here uh, it is really fun. It, it's fun to see, for me, the different Easter eggs that are going on. I agree. It was, it was a very, very good ending. And the fact that Shanked was not, in fact, going to assassinate, assassinate Manza, but preserving her was also a great twist. Shanked is kind of the third side of things. You've got Baez on one side, Korul on the other side, and now Shanked is, I think that's part of the reason why he wanted to save Monza is because he thought she could be a good leader for this burgeoning third third side to come out of things that will probably factor in in later books. Yeah, we really don't know enough about Shanked. I risked spoiling things for myself and I read his page on the wiki and sounds like he does not appear in the next two books, nor A Little Hatred. So we haven't seen any more from him yet. But there is speculation that he is in fact King Casimir, I believe, a former uh, king that was manipulated by Baez and has now just had enough of both sides and is trying to do everything he can to pit both of them against each other and not have either one win. Yeah, he's a very interesting character. Yeah, I want to talk more about him, but I'm going to wait till our next segment for that. Okay, yeah, we're ready for our final segment. I think we've talked through the plot, uh, we've talked through it to death. So we're going to do our worst of the best. This is where we touch on some of the best scenes, our favorite scenes from the book that just had one little moment that was kind of uh, threw us off and, and maybe took us out of it or, or wasn't our favorite. So Ben, sounds like you have something to lead us off. Yeah, so obviously mine has to do with Shanked. I really liked a ton of things about it, right? Like the fact that he kind of came full circle. He was the bone thief at the beginning and he was preserving them and like killing all the assassins that were sent after him. And from a plot and story perspective, great. There are two things that I didn't like as much about it. One, like way too OP, right? Like like nobody ever landed a hit on him. Yeah, he was burning bend alloy or whatever it is that Mistborns can burn <laughs> in, in Era 2. That allows you to slow it on time. That guy was crazy strong. And you really see it when they like flip a coin and he like takes out like freaking 15 people before the coin hits the ground or whatever, or he catches the coin. Again, like great made for TV moment or made for movie moment. But again, like very overpowered. And that kind of leads into my second point, which was I was for, for whatever reason, I kind of wanted there to be a showdown between Shanked and somebody that could land a hit on him. Like Ishri? Yeah, like maybe Ishri. But for whatever reason, I had it in my mind that him and Friendly were going to go at it at some point. (laughs) I was like irrationally mad that that did not happen. I feel like I just get these thoughts in my head that like this thing needs to happen in order for this book to feel complete to me. And when that didn't happen, it was kind of a letdown. Even though everything was really great about his character, I was just sad that he didn't have that like moment where he goes up against somebody that landed a hit on him. Maybe we'll see that in future books. Ryan, do you have a worst of the best? Yeah, I think mine's just kind of overarching, just the story. Joe Abercrombie just does such a great job of creating characters that you connect with and root for, even if they're not the best people. And I mentioned on the Discord that I get connected to a lot of these characters in this standalone book more than some characters in trilogies, in which there's a lot more time to get to know them. And I think most of all is Shivers is I was really, really cheering for him in the book and wanted him to get better. But it was just so painful watching him become worse and worse and worse throughout the story. And it makes sense. It makes sense because of the genre. It makes sense because of who Shivers is and his the actions that he takes. And once again, shout out to Jovi on our Discord who took a lot of time to explain the deeper motivations and some things that we had missed throughout the story. Uh, He answered a lot of our questions and he kind of explained Shivers a lot better to me, just how he doesn't really try that hard to be a good person. He he lets himself fall into bad habits because there's there's so much more rewarding, uh, at least 
initially than than acting as a good person is. But it was just it was painful for me to see him make those bad choices and to end up where he did end up at the end of the story. And I don't think the ending was a good ending because I'm conditioned to want a happy ending for all of the characters I'm cheering for. And that's definitely not the case in this book. But I do think the ending made sense. And I think that the motivations for the characters, they ended up where they they should have. And I think Joe Abercrombie wrote an amazing novel because of that. One thing with Shivers that I neglected to mention was he is the one who killed number six on the list, the other son, the brother of Ario. And that was another moment where Monza was basically not going to kill him. And then Shivers stepped in and bashed his head in on the stones. And that, like, okay, man, you're you're pretty far gone at this point. Yeah, it was a very brutal scene. Mine, I actually just kind of mentioned this in passing, but my worst of the best, I loved Glockta in the first trilogy. And I love little Easter eggs. I think you'll probably have figured that out by now if you've listened to this far in the podcast. I really wish that Glockta had showed up just briefly in that scene where they were doing the peace talks and Jazal was there and you saw things through uh, someone else. You saw Jazal through someone else's perspective. And that was fun. I think I wish they would have done the same for Glockta. They just kind of mentioned him in passing and they never even say his name. They just call him the cripple. And I wish we could have seen him. I really hope we see him in future books. I know that we see shivers in future books. That's been mentioned to me. So hopefully Ryan, he gets something of a redemption because yeah, at this point, he's in way he's in a way bad shape, very bad play. Yeah. Okay, thanks for listening. This has been our review of Best Served Cold by Joe Abercrombie. We really like this book. I think we have a very high opinion of Joe and the series thus far, and I think we're all going to start reading The Heroes pretty soon, which is our next standalone book, and we'll do a similar thing on Discord where we do kind of a read-along, so we'll post some spoiler tags as we go through. And if you're a fan of the series, hop on Discord you can get that invite on our social media at Phantology Books or on our website, www.phantologybooks.com. We'd love to chat with you and engage with you guys. Hopefully you enjoy the content we're putting out. We're having a great time doing this. Hope you're having a great time listening. Thanks, Ryan and Ben, for coming on with us. See you guys next time. See ya. Bye.